So, hey, uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, uh, AFP grassroots team. I'm John Burns, the Education Director for Concerned Veterans for America, and I'm here with Senior Policy Manager Tyler Katetsky, who is the uh, Foreign Policy Specialist on the Policy Team at AFP. Uh, and we're here today to talk to you about the Ukraine. Uh, if you're listening to this, we are probably somewhere uh, in the winter of 2022 Ukrainian crisis phase of foreign policy. And we just want to update you with our internal talking points so that you are equipped to talk to activists and to volunteers and audiences if they press you about what our POV is on the Ukraine. So without any further ado, Tyler, uh, just say hi. Hey, John, great to be here. Thanks. And we're just going to dive right into this. So I'm going to start with a big question. I mean, does the United States have any vital interest, any national interest in the Ukraines or, or the environs thereof that would justify our use of force or our going to war? Well, in a word, no. Um, you know, Ukraine's a, a pretty distant peripheral country. Um, it's about 5,000 miles from the U.S. And it's crucially not a NATO ally. So we are not treaty bound to defend this country. Um, if, if you know, we, that's not to say that we don't sympathize with the situation that it's in. You know, I'm as, as many of you who may have tried to spell my last name in emails may have guessed, uh, I'm, I'm part Polish. And so I certainly sympathize with a, a, the plight of any country under threat from Russia. Um, but there's a difference between where our sympathies lie and where responsible stewardship of our national interests dictates that we have to be smart about when we uh, commit force. And we have a greater national interest in making sure that this crisis gets a diplomatic solution and doesn't get out of hand. Roger that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, so let's think about this. I mean, I'm sure that that having said that, we, we know that there are some costs of going to war, uh, but there are even costs of just deploying further U.S. military forces to Eastern Europe, aren't there? I mean, we do have we have some forces training in the Ukraine, which are you know at risk, and I'm sure the Ukrainians are kind of happy about that. You know. It, it, they feel like maybe we have one chip on their table. Um, and I know that, you know, we have we have um, forces that participate in exercises around uh, NATO's, you know, eastern flank, Poland, uh, the Baltic states, et cetera. Uh, and certainly there are always some some training advising missions there. Uh, you know, I, I also know uh, as we're doing this in, in late January that, you know, it's made the news that there have been some forces alerted, at least, you know, soldiers uh, at Fort Bragg and, and elsewhere told to, you know, pack up your bags and be ready to go if you need to go. Those forces on our alert, you know, probably to go to somewhere like Poland. Uh, but still, you know, what, what are the costs of war um, or, or even just, you know, deploying further U.S. forces overseas at this point? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a really important consideration to take into account because, you know, we've got our record debt right now, a massive supply chain crisis. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're basically trying to, to uh, figure out things at home right now and a, a major escalation and potentially a, a war with a, a nuclear armed state is, is really the last thing we need right now. But even just some of the financial costs to say nothing of the uh, potential casualties this could entail, um, you know, a, a scholar named uh, Mark Kansian over at, at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies did a uh, estimate sort of late uh, 2021 on what a potential sort of permanent NATO force in Ukraine could look like. Because that's one of the things they're they're seeking ultimately is is membership in NATO. Um, 
And he basically said that uh, sort of a, a credible forward defense, uh, and this is before Russia concentrated all these forces on the border, so it would probably be more now, uh, but that would be you know at least $27 billion in one-time costs and uh, $11 billion annually thereafter. Obviously, those costs massively raise if we're talking about you know, additional in, infusions of troops in events to a crisis. And so like to walk through what some of this, the reasons for some of these costs, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, like several different combat brigades. So lots of ground troops, uh, an air wing, you know, a divisional headquarters, you need missile defenses. You got to have trainers to train the Ukrainians, some of which we're already doing right now with Florida National Guardsmen, um, you know, we're also talking about improving Ukraine's infrastructure because their roads are currently so bad. So we, you know, we're stuck talking about we can't even figure out the right way to have an infrastructure bill that isn't loaded with a bunch of other uh, silly stuff in it. And we'd have to be building Ukraine's infrastructure so that other NATO countries could come and reinforce it if Russia attacked. They've got uh, a, just a huge border shared with Russia. They're just famous historically for being this wide open step. So there's really not that many natural borders that are easy to defend. Um, you know, but more importantly than the financial costs to, if it comes down to actual war with Russia, you know, a, a lot of commentators are talking about, oh, we have to we have to stand up for Ukraine. They're in this terrible situation. Well, I don't really think it's helping the Ukrainians if we encourage them to uh, act tough and 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 get in a situation where they're going to be in a war with Russia that they can't win by themselves and that there's no good reason for us to get involved in. You know, that means uh, you know, tens of thousands of additional Ukrainians probably killed, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, internally displaced, their economy wrecked. And if the US gets involved, probably tens of thousands of American casualties at a very minimum. You know, this isn't Russia's not. Uh, the Taliban or ISIS, right? They have a sophisticated, uh, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. Um, you know, they can do these combined arm assaults of, uh, you know, air, land, and sea, really sophisticated uh, missiles that would make the attack that Iran launched after uh, the Soleimani strike look like a cakewalk. So we gotta, we gotta, we can't mess around. Like we have to be really careful about where we commit our troops and what we make more likely to happen uh, potentially by virtue of our actions. So that's the, those are some really high costs in terms of both treasure and blood. Um, uh, I just ask you to touch on the opportunity costs as well on the military side, right? I mean, so if we're sending, yeah. if we're sending, you know, five brigade combat teams out of, you know, out of 50, one-tenth of our land power, and most of it's not available for, for you know, rapid deployment on any given notice, and we're sending an air wing, and obviously we'd be sending naval forces to the Baltic and Black Seas to support that. Uh, there's some opportunity costs there in terms of, you know, other places in the world that are, that are important to us as well, isn't there? Absolutely. That's a really important point. You know, I think a lot of people have again, in making the case to get more involved in Ukraine, they've talked about US credibility and advanced this argument that if we are not helping Ukraine uh, you know, fight to the last against Russia and stand tall, then that sends the, the wrong signal to China or you know, right after we've, we've uh, left Afghanistan and our adversaries are so emboldened right now. Um, 
frankly, because of the opportunity costs that you mentioned that we have limited defense resources, you know, like any country, we face constraints. We need to take those into account. If this is a time in our country's history where we should be committing to Europe less, we should have less troops in Europe and we should have our wealthy European allies who collectively have five times the GDP of Russia. Uh, we need to have them be stepping up and taking a greater role in their own defense so that they can deter Russia if they think it's important for their national interests and not have to rely on us to come transatlantically to do that. You know, what's more, the more important region for the US long term to be focusing our limited resources on is the Asia Pacific and China. So people talk about, oh, if we don't help Ukraine, won't China think they can invade Taiwan and get away with it? Well, if we have, you know, 8,500 troops bogged down in Europe, those are 8,500 troops that can't be deterring uh, China's potential ideas about Taiwan. You know, we, we want to make sure that we can uh, focus our resources over there so that China knows that, you know, the potential costs of doing that will factor into their calculations and they decide not to try to attack Taiwan. Um, you know, and some other people have said to, hey, after we've left Afghanistan, hasn't that emboldened our allies too? And I'll just add there, I think, uh, Russia, in thinking about this crisis, is probably a little dismayed that we aren't bogged down in Afghanistan because we now have more resources that could potentially respond, even though we shouldn't militarily here. So, so would you know would those eighty five hundred or or sixteen thousand would that deter the Russians if we forward position them in Poland or you know or Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Lviv, Kiev? Would that serve as a deterrent to the Russians? I don't think so. And, and the reason for that is because Ukraine matters a lot more to Russia than it matters to us. Um, you know, at, after the end of the Cold War, when we were debating NATO expansion in the 1990s, uh, Henry Kissinger had this pretty instructive quote, and it was, uh, the West must understand that to Russia, Ukraine can never be just a foreign country. It must not be either side's outpost against the other. It should function as a bridge between them. And so he was making the case for Ukraine to be neutral as its best option to you know, be able to remain autonomous and determine its own future without uh, uh, appearing as a security threat to Russia. Um, simply put, uh, Russia you know, has, has deep standing cultural and historical ties to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is part of its original kind of national myth. Of, Narr of the national founding. narrative, right? The, the yeah. first capital was Kiev, which is actually in Ukraine. It's, it's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, if, if at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. had to uh, make Texas independent again, but also Independence Hall had been in Texas. You know, we'd, we'd care about its future alignment, especially since it bordered us. And that's sort of the way that we have to think about uh, the stakes Russia perceives with Ukraine. This isn't to say that, you know, understanding why Russia thinks this is different from thinking that what they're doing is okay. But again, if we're, if we're properly safeguarding our national interests, it's important that we understand how our adversaries think. Um, they're simply willing to sacrifice a lot more costs to secure their objectives, which is a Ukraine that is either friendly to them or doesn't threaten them. And the US public, as polling shows, and also uh, our kind of most important European NATO allies like France and Germany aren't willing to 
fight over this either to the same degree that Russia would be. Yeah. So what are what are Russia's security concerns? I mean, why why we know culturally, historically, kind of geographically, why Ukraine is so important to them. But but what are their security concerns that have them, you know, resisting NATO expansion that have them up in arms about, you know, the fact that NATO is in Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic now, and the Slovak Republic, that, it, that it's in the Baltic states. Uh, you know, what are their security concerns that have them so focused on keeping Ukraine uh, friendly, neutral, at a minimum? So you, you have to think about it in the sense of, you know, Russia formerly being an empire, both under the czars and then uh, as, as the USSR. And the fact that Ukraine, um, the Baltic states, you know, a lot of other now independent countries were formerly part of its territory. So there's kind of that close cultural and historical connection anyway. But then also that under the Soviet Union, a lot of Eastern Europe was in the Warsaw Pact, the counter to NATO. And we're all in its sort of geopolitical orbit to counter the West. After, uh, after the Cold War ended, you know, we then had all these countries become sort of politically independent and over time start going into the West's orbit. So in, in uh, I think 1997, we admitted the first round of former Eastern Bloc Warsaw Pact states. So countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. Uh, and then in 2004, we admitted uh, the, the Baltic states, which border Russia for the first time. And this, this really over time soured our relations with Russia because they have, you know, there are still people in Russia who have living memory of World War II and their country being invaded from the West. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people in Ukraine who also have living memory <laughs> of, you know, Russia, uh, you know, uh, coming in as well and, and, and have lived through 2014 and whatnot. But from Russia's perspective, right, it, it has been invaded multiple times from the West. And so it's what you'd call it's near abroad, it's countries that border it, it cares about having uh, those states as sort of secure buffers against potential invasion from NATO. And that's what Kissinger was talking about of Ukraine uh, being better off not as a outpost for any side to potentially attack each other from. Um, you know, and I think also too, just uh, uh, historically, the Russian fleet has been able to operate out of the Crimean Peninsula in the south of Ukraine, and so they've considered that vital for some of their naval naval access too. So, so just you know, and I, I know we both know the answer to this, but for the for the novice listener. Um, I, could, I think it would be fair to say that Russia's foreign policy uh, strategies have been remarkably consistent since the consolidation of the Russian state in the 18th century. Uh, and, you know, securing uh, invasion routes from the West with buffer states and warm water port ports has been something that czars, uh, commissars and, uh, you know, kleptocrats have all uh, sought for the same, very same strategic reasons, right? If, you, if you're invested in the state of Russia as a nation state, then those two objectives, uh, a secure buffer zone to the West and warm water port in the Black Sea are incredibly important, correct? That's, that's precisely correct. You know, the labels may change, but the interests don't. And, you know, a lot of people think this is about Putin specifically, but I think even if you had a different Russian leader who was more liberal, like Alexei Navalny, something like that, he'd probably still be taking a hard line on Ukraine's potential NATO membership for those exact Russian national interests that don't change. 
So is it in anybody's interest to have you, aside from maybe the, the current Ukrainian government in the Western region of Ukraine, is it in anybody's interest, maybe not even theirs, but is it in anybody's interest to have Ukraine actually join NATO uh, at some point in the future? I don't think so. You know, and most importantly, it's clearly not in Americans' interests um, or, or the NATO alliances for that matter. And, and the reason why is you know, we were going over the costs of potentially defending Ukraine it's, it's large border that it shares with Russia, how hard that is to defend. Um, and that's, that imposes a lot of permanent costs on the US and our European allies. And it, it increasingly just makes the NATO alliance less credible. We've got what's called the Article 5 guarantee in NATO that if any member's attacked, everybody else has to come and defend them. That's really, you know, throughout the Cold War, it was really important to deter the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact from trying to you know, attack further west. And, uh, you know, since the end of the Cold War, it certainly restrained Russia a lot. But Russia knows that's an important guarantee. And so therefore, it's willing to take, you know, you might say almost desperate actions to prevent additional countries near it from becoming part of NATO. Um, we don't want to be in a situation such as with Ukraine, where there's that Article 5 guarantee but then countries aren't willing to honor it because they know that uh, uh, fighting over a country like Ukraine that's not in their national interest would be disastrous, right? That would be terrible for US and NATO credibility long-term. So it's not even a good idea to expand NATO outwards to Ukraine. And that's true regardless of if that's what Putin also agrees with, right? Like we, we, should, we should make our policy based on our own national interests, not what you know, people we don't like might also say about our policy options. Roger. So let's uh, let's look at look at uh, you know kind of the 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 worst and then the 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 best in terms of like outcomes here. Like, what's the worst case scenario that we have here? I, I think the, the the worst potential case scenario, and I, I think it's unlikely based on on what uh, the president has already said and what seems likely outcomes, but that we we deployed actual US troops to Ukraine. And because of that intransigence, then they were in direct contact uh, with hostilities with Russian forces. That would be the absolute worst case scenario would probably result in a larger European war, potentially even a limited nuclear exchange. Uh, and even a limited one, you know, the use of nuclear weapons at all would be absolutely terrible. We want to avoid that uh, at all hazards, certainly. Um, you know, and, and more importantly, right, that would pretty much be generationally poisoned the well with Russia at a time that we should be focusing on China's rise and hoping to at least diplomatically neutralize Russia so that they're not uh, close allies with China and we can focus on one at a time. I think you know, more realistic scenario, which is still bad, is that we deploy additional troops to our NATO allies like Poland and the Baltic states, you know, which are close by, but not in Ukraine, of course, uh, and that we continue giving arms uh, such as, you know, a Javelin anti-tank missiles to, to Ukraine that may improve some of their capabilities, but won't really change the balance of power on the ground in the event of a, a Russian invasion. And that, again, we still, that, that 
because of this, we encourage Ukraine to talk tough instead of pursuing a diplomatic solution about its sort of breakaway eastern regions, which could maybe look like, you know, federal autonomy for them while they still stay a part of Ukraine. But if again, if we're arming them, deploying additional troops, kind of encouraging them to think that we're going to, you know, stick up for them when we really won't, you know, that that makes a diplomatic solution less likely, encourages Russia to invade. Ukraine probably loses even more territory than they otherwise would, maybe has a partition. And more importantly, you know, especially if if Western Ukraine, uh, which still might remain after that, joins NATO, then that's just a permanent source of future antagonism with Russia for the next couple of decades at a time that we should be focusing on Asia. Roger, Roger. So keeping in mind that this is obviously a fluid situation, and as we're recording this, by the time people are listening to it, some, some things may have changed. But but what's the right approach? What what should the U.S. be doing? I mean, I know diplomacy is, is, is the watchword, but like what, what are concrete steps? What can we be doing within the bounds of a foreign policy of realism and restraint? That, and what really realistically, and, and I know we all here talking heads and I hear it on everything from right-leaning news outlets to, you know, to, to left-leaning news outlets to government supported news outlets. Um, there's a lot of hawks talking about, you know, why we have to draw that line in the sand and, and make sure this doesn't happen and hold Russia accountable. But what's the right approach? What, what should the U.S. be doing? How can we shape this with our European partners so that we get the best possible outcome? Well, you know, a, uh, a, a scholar, uh, Rajan Menon over at Defense Priority has actually laid out a pretty detailed kind of set of steps that the U.S. could take to try and, you know, best achieve sort of a stable diplomatic outcome to this. And so I, I'll walk through some of those because I think they're pretty instructive, you know, and, and one of those is just have the, the U.S. and Russia just keep talking directly because this is partly about Ukraine and joining NATO, but I think it's also Russia's attempt to address just larger security concerns it's got about future NATO expansion, where forces are deployed in Europe, that kind of thing. So this is actually, in some ways, an opportunity to, after the immediate crisis is addressed, uh, address you know kind of longer term defense treaties and things like that. Um, you know, secondly though, there's there's an opportunity to just offer a moratorium on Ukraine joining in in NATO. Um, you know, I think it's probably politically a non-starter for the U.S. to permanently commit to never having them in, even though it would be a good idea to do that for the reasons we discussed. But, you know, there's there's, there's it would be very low cost for the U.S. to say, hey, we're not going to admit Ukraine or the country of Georgia for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, something like that, uh, that can just calm the situation down a little bit. You know, but doesn't require the same sort of binding treaty that the NATO alliance would probably never agree to. That that uh, uh, not admitting Ukraine just costs us so little because they weren't part of our security orbit really ever until uh, 2014 after the the protests that ousted the the pro Russian president and got a more Western aligned one in. This is a new development, really just ensuring that they're not in NATO gives us an opportunity to stabilize our relations with Russia. And if they're neutral long-term, you know, which is something else that we should be trying to build that denies Russia the opportunity to then make 
Ukraine their ally and base their own forces there. So which would actually cost Russia a lot more than it would cost us. And I think, you know, one thing that we can do maybe as a first step to defuse this crisis is to offer to pause the arms sales and security assistance to Ukraine if Russia agrees to pull back its troops and kind of just gradually do more of that over time. I mean, these are real concrete steps that are not hard to imagine, just using some creative statecraft to try and accomplish. And we, we shouldn't have such a, a, a militarized approach to this where we can only think in terms of how many people we're deploying, how many weapons we're sending. You know, we, we got to rediscover our sort of lost art of diplomacy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, thinking through it again, you know, with my knowledge of history and maybe some of some of the folks on the team, you know, remember this. But, you know, during the Cold War, we did have, you know, we did have NATO, but we also had Western leaning states who were not part of NATO, um, who had a lot at stake, uh, you know, and I'm thinking primarily of, of Austria and Sweden, um, you know, who were participated in kind of collective security without being part of NATO uh, because they were, you know, closer and because because they weren't part of the initial NATO agreement, it would have been antagonistic to add them, you know, and on the flip side, you had Finland, which was a little more, you know, obviously a little more, um, you know, Eastern leaning. It, it was, it was kind of semi-satellite of the Soviet Union, but it was able to trade and have relations with the West in a different way than hardcore members of, you know, of the Warsaw Pact were primarily because nobody really wanted to see, a, 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 you know, a Northern flank fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, you know, similar, similar things could apply. I mean, you know, um, we could treat Ukraine as a neutral, you know, intermediary. And again, maybe, you know, maybe there's an autonomous Finnish kind of Western uh, sorry, Finnish kind of Eastern zone that, that leans very much towards Moscow and a, and a, uh, you know, a Western leaning uh, Western zone of, of uh, Ukraine. And obviously, you know, again, you and I know with, with a lot of Slavic blood and history, uh, you know, part of, part of the divide there is, is that, you know, there are a lot of ethnic Russians in Western, uh, sorry, in Eastern Ukraine. There are a lot of ethnic Russians in Eastern Ukraine, uh, and it's primarily uh, Eastern Orthodox in terms of religious outlook. There are, you know, more Ukrainians who are more, more greater tendency to be Roman Catholics in Western Ukraine, and there is a cultural divide within the country itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and just it, it's it's those those contradictions are are like baked into the the story of Ukraine itself from sort of being these kind of fierce independent warriors that resisted the Russians to then being kind of trusted parts of their army in history, um, and 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 those those sort of religious. Uh, linguistic divides too, since the West speaks more Ukrainian, the Russian, uh, the the East speaks more Russian. These are reflected in in the poll results too, uh, in terms of the pro-Russian or pro-Western parties. And so it's a it's a deeply divided country, and the best way for it to be able to stay together long term without having a a bloody civil war, even more so than has already happened, um, is is this sort of neutral stance, you know, internally protecting minority language rights in all of these regions and just kind of giving everyone a, a more acceptable way forward where they don't think they need to resort to violence. Um, and, you know, that that perfectly satisfies uh, the U.S.'s security concerns because Russian troops wouldn't be based in there. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it denies Russia that advantage if they're they're neutral which 
you know, would hurt Russia way more than it would us uh, as an opportunity. Right, right. So I know uh, that kind of covers the, the the talking points that we've laid out with uh, with yourself and the the comms team, and that we're we're circulating uh, currently, so that that our staff can can address questions. Right, neither the talking points nor this uh, particular recording should be shared directly with outsiders to the team, and that includes activists and volunteers. These are for internal consumption, but it's to enable you to talk. Uh, adequately and articulately about the subjects. I know that, that there are going to be some hard questions for folks. And I know we, we can't, you know, handle them all here. And I know that a lot of it will be a review of what you and I just talked about. But let's just like a couple of things that people might ask a, a, an AFP staffer or a Libre staffer or a CVA staffer in an office when they're watching the news one night while they're, you know, doing a phone bank or having a, a rally about healthcare or something like that. Um, let's start with, you know, the, the, the question we get all the time. Uh, aren't we better off just supporting democracies around the globe? Isn't that better for the United States, even incomplete ones like the Ukraine? Well, you know, I think there's no question that we we support people's aspirations for democracy and, and well wish those aspirations and, and hope that people succeed. And that's, you know, whether we're talking uh, Ukraine, people's aspirations for a democratic Venezuela, um, any, anywhere else, right? We, we would like that to happen, you know, because that's, that's a more consistent form of government with our vision. Absolutely. But we also know that the best way to support the expansion of democracy abroad and, and make that more stable, a more stable hope for people in the future is to uh, promote that by, by modeling those liberal values, liberal meaning, you know, classical liberal. So small government and freedom, you know, modeling those values here at home and, and using that example to make that case abroad. You know, that's was what was most effective during the cold war was that people, you know, thought, having free speech and cool music and blue jeans was great. And that, you know, stuffy authoritarian communist regimes really sucked. Um, and, you know, directly trying to do state sponsored projects to, to stir up uh, uh, protests or do direct regime change like in Iraq, you know, that inspires understandable backlash with people compared to you know, showing how great uh, the model that America is built on, you know, through enacting the right policies here at home, which is, you know, fortunately what you all are doing. Um, and so, again, like for Ukraine's situation, the best way for them to be able to have that democratic experiment continue is taking that neutral approach rather than trying to be this outpost of the West against Russia. Good answer. Good answer. So moving on. You know, I know, I know that we're going to get this question from activists. I, I know we've all already heard it from activists, from journalists, from from partners. Uh, isn't Russia just a threat to our security? Don't they, you know, upset the world order? Uh, and why are we enabling Russia in this power grab? Why are we enabling Putin to continue, you know, with his his power mad ways? So I mean, you know, Russia, of course, has the capability to be threatening. Um, we absolutely shouldn't discount that they've got the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Um, a, a sophisticated military, but also we have to put their the fact that they can be a threat at all into perspective about the relative size of their threat, right? As I mentioned before, Europe's got about five times the GDP that Russia has. Um, if they start spending more on their defense instead of free riding off of our security guarantees, 
you know, they can, they're more than up to the task of deterring Russia from launching any sort of serious invasion West. Um, I think historically too, what we've sort of talked about, about previous Russian intentions, I think those are mostly in their near abroad. And then just, you know, being a thorn in the side for the US when they can. But that really, that second part really depends on what the state of US and Russian relations are. You know, we've had different phases throughout our history where we've been more willing to uh, cooperate on things like arms control uh, and times where we've been more antagonistic. And that changes over time with, with any country that's a potential adversary, but we shouldn't see Russia exclusively as a foe, right? There are definitely places where we will want to compete with them and rightly so, but there are also areas where we have opportunities to cooperate when we can, and we shouldn't close off those opportunities because of crises happening. If anything, seeing how high the stakes of not stabilizing relations are should be more of an incentive to, to keep talking with them. And, uh, you know, I think the, the best way to contain their ambitions is to make sure that there's a diplomatic solution here in Ukraine so that it's neutral and for our European allies to rearm so that they're able to deter Russia in the long term. None of that involves sending troops or arms to Ukraine or deploying additional U.S. troops to Europe. I think that leads me to the last, you know, hard question, which is, you know, having our alliances made us safer, you know, shouldn't we just be looking to build bigger and better alliances throughout the globe? I mean, I, I certainly agree that NATO was a really important alliance during the Cold War, just given the, the much greater threat that the Soviet Union posed than Russia does today. Um, that said, since the end of the Cold War, you know, it's, it's nice that we have NATO as a, a sort of pre-existing organization that makes cooperation more easy, but it's just nowhere near as important to our security as it was then. And, and furthermore, you know, expanding NATO further is a source for things that we can avoid with Russia over things they care very deeply about that only marginally benefit the U.S. at best. You know, uh, George Kennan, who's a very famous U.S. diplomat, originally came up with the idea of containment to deter the Soviet Union at the height of our being scared about them in the 50s. He wrote in 1997, when we were initially expanding NATO, that doing so would be a strategic blunder of potentially epic proportions. And this is a guy who made his career initially by being you know, hawkish on the threat that the Soviet Union posed and figuring out the best way to address it. And he felt that we were missing an opportunity to stabilize our relations with them in the long run. And so, yes, you know, uh, alliances are important, and but they should be tied to our national interests. And we should we should make sure that, you know, we have the same interests as our allies and that we're supporting them when those interests overlap. In situations like committing ourselves to wars in places peripheral to those interests, like Ukraine, that would be a situation where our alliance doesn't make us more secure because it gets us in a war we don't want, right? Um, and, and particularly if, if we're overextending ourselves rather than focusing on, on bigger foreign policy threats or more important domestic priorities, you know, that's not a benefit. And so we can honor our existing alliances without um, overextending them further by adding new guarantees that we don't need.
Thanks. So I'm going to kind of sum up here a little bit. Key takeaways, I think, right? Uh, it is not in the U.S. interests to go to war over in or near the Ukraine anytime in the near future. In fact, that could have catastrophic consequences as it would be a contest between uh, nuclear powers with huge nuclear arsenals. Uh, additionally, it would be catastrophic for the Ukrainian people to have a prolonged war on their own territory and that the best possible outcome for the Ukrainian people would be to have a de-escalation of the situation that allows, you know, that, that, that diplomatically solves for Russia's security issues, um, for Ukraine's, you know, desire to be independent and for, you know, the West's desire to remain at peace. And that, you know, that we should be driving on a diplomatic solution that leaves, you know, all parties equally unsatisfied, uh, but still solves for the, for the major issues that each party has. That's uh, right on. I think that sums it up quite well. Well, I, you know, we've gone a little longer than I thought we would, but we did handle some hard questions. And uh, folks, I hope this helps you kind of connect to your activists, your audiences, the volunteers who have questions about this. Uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. You know that myself and Tyler are, are both available uh, to answer questions about this. I would, I would throw out there that, you know, as part of the grassroots team, I'd rather you come to me first, uh, just because I know Tyler's got some proactive things he's working on, some forward-looking things, and I'm happy to be your first stop if you have questions about this. But if I can't get you an answer, Tyler will, or, or, or the two of us will go to the, to the big foreign policy team, and we'll get you an answer there. Uh, Tyler, thanks for your time. I really appreciate this chat, and, uh, you know, uh, look forward to, to doing this again in the near future the next time we have a big issue to talk about. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure.